You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So we're going to pick up where we left off as we've been walking through the Gospel of John. Welcome to 2019. Here we go. Now up to this point, John, one of the eyewitness uh, uh, one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus, one of his best friends even, we would say, one of the 12 apostles is introducing us to Jesus so that we see at the very end of this book, so that people who might be introduced to Jesus, it says, might believe in his name, might, might cast off whatever it is that they're hoping in or wanting and look to Jesus and hope in him. And the way that he's been introducing us to Jesus is by introducing us to a list of people who don't get Jesus. And he keeps introducing us to people who have tons and tons of questions for Jesus. Now, I, I want to always point out when that happens, because maybe if you're here this morning and, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe if you would say, I have tons of doubts and questions about Jesus, then John wrote this gospel 2,000 years ago for you and for skeptics like me. And if you think, well, I have a ton of questions, John introduces us to a bunch of people who have even more questions. And Jesus isn't intimidated by them. He's not bothered by those questions. And in the same way, I would say to you, if, maybe if you're in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, in many ways, I'm glad you're here because you're why I'm here. You don't ever have to become a Christian to be welcome here. You are always welcome here. And so, where does that come from? It comes from John telling us about Jesus. Jesus who welcomes people, even those who reject him. In fact, especially those who want to shut him up and kill him. So, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read the entirety of John chapter 9. We're going to read all of it. It's going to take about five minutes or so to get through it. If you space out in the middle of it, that's okay. I want, to, I want to expand and stretch your attention span for the Bible and for the teaching of the Bible. I don't want to abuse it, but I want to intentionally, hopefully, stretch your attention span. So, beginning in verse 1, picking up, picking up where we left off, Jesus introducing himself at the feast of the tents or tabernacles or booth, the temporary dwellings. He says, look, I'm your dwelling place. And then he says, I'm the water that will satisfy you and I am the light that will bring you out of darkness. What kind of darkness, you ask? John chapter 9 tells us. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, nobody is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash 
So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this sin is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains.
leading up to this chapter, Jesus has said some provocative things, specifically right before as they were celebrating together God's provision for His people through the wilderness, being led by the sustenance of food falling from the sky and and the rock that would struck to provide water for both them and all of their animals and even the light that was guiding them by night. Jesus says, I am those things. I am your sustenance in the wilderness. I am your source of water in the desert and I am the light in the darkness. After all, the Feast of the Tabernacles was a celebration of water and of light. And we saw the last time we were in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And so we come to chapter 9 with kinds of questions like, well, okay, what do you mean by that, Jesus? What kind of darkness are you talking about? What do you mean you're the light? And chapter 9 is the answer. What kind of light is Jesus? And the first thing that we're introduced to to explain what kind of light that Jesus is, is a man who was born blind. A man blind from birth. Now remember, Jesus never does a miracle without actually trying to introduce himself through it. That's why John calls these miracles signs, right? They're, they're signs that are sealed by God the Father, right? I told you this, this, Jesus is not a false sign like the false sign in front of Kohl's or in, uh, in front of like uh, Costco, Right, That sign has no power to be enforced. Now again, you can get a ticket for reckless driving anywhere, but Coles cannot pull you over. They don't have the authority. But there are real signs out there that point to real authority, aren't there? And while a stop sign will never pull you over, it points to one who can. True? So Jesus performs these miracles as a sign, sealed by God the Father, that God is with us and for us. It points to a greater authority, a greater mission, a greater purpose that God is doing. A greater work we even see here that God is doing for us in Jesus. And we have a sign here to point to who Jesus is. Did you catch what that sign is? Jesus is the light. A specific kind of light. In light of even suffering. Jesus is the only meaningful answer to sin, pain, and suffering. Because he's the only one who has the power to give true sight. But don't miss the corollary, the haunting warning at the end of this account. When the light of Jesus shines, some are made to see, and some are blinded by it. So he introduces us, that is John, to Jesus. Says right after, once he says, look, I'm, I am, I am the light of the world. In fact, Abraham, the man you revere, he looked to the day when I would be here. And before Abraham was, Jesus says, I was there. So as he walks away, because they were really angry and they wanted to kill him, you would think, Jesus, all right, now that he gets it, and now that they've threatened him, now that they've, with hostility, as the the rising, escalating aggression keeps happening until finally Jesus on a cross, you would think, surely he's not going to do anything else to make them angry, but we see Jesus doing here, and I love, once again, I'm a literature nerd, if you are too, join me. I love John's use of irony at every single turn. There's a couple of them here, my favorite of which is he told us about it, and then it wasn't until a little bit later, did you catch what what he tells us about the the sign that he had done? Verse 14, "Oh, oh, by the way, it was the Sabbath again. It was the Sabbath. This is Jesus' jam. He loves to do stuff like this on the Sabbath. 
And you'll say, well, how does one keep a day holy? And Jesus says, watch me. I will make people whole. I will show you what keeping Sabbath holy looks like. So it says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now don't miss what John is trying to teach us. He threw in a little phrase there, from birth. Made sure that we knew this this wasn't a man who had become blind, maybe because of a sickness or maybe because of an accident or an injury. And the point is very clear. I don't want you to miss the theological significance of those phrases, from birth. It's this. Human beings are spiritually blind from birth. The Bible goes to great lengths to talk about this, how human beings are conceived and brought forth in iniquity, that is, in sin. It's something that we can't escape. We're born into it. We are born into something that is broken. And the worst part of the brokenness isn't that it is out there, but that it is in here. He wants us to see this kind of thing that's going on is meant to point to a specific power of Jesus. Now what we see after that is really important as well. We're going to spend a lot of time working through this because in the first seven verses, we have this picture of healing. But I don't know if you caught that there. Following it are four different interrogations. Four different, starting in verse 8, verse 13, verse uh, uh, 18, and then verse 24. Excuse me, verse 24 and then, yeah, verse 18 and 24. And then at the very end, beginning in verse 35, Jesus kind of gives an application or summary, an explanation of what it is that he's doing. And so the really interesting thing that's happening, the miracle only lasts a few verses in this chapter. The interrogations go on. Understanding what we see presented in the first seven chapters is the debate that happens for the rest of chapter 9. So we're going to spend the most of our time, like chapter 9, trying to explain or talk about the first seven verses. As he passed by, he saw a man born blind. He's blind from birth. And to point to some sort of a condition, Jesus is going to heal. Verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That word, that, so that, or in order that. How did this man come about to be blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? And I want you to see right off the bat something that I hope you can even begin to use and to understand the world even today. You see two false views of suffering. Blame and shame. They come with an assumption, don't they? What sin brought about this suffering? So they're asking a question that's really important. What is the relationship between sin and sinfulness and pain and suffering? What is their relationship? How are they connected? How is it that they work together? Are they causal? Do they relate to one another in some sort of symbiotic way? Was one dependent upon the other? And what we see presented here are two false views that Jesus corrects. That either A, the suffering is something that ought to be blamed, or suffering is a result of something you should be ashamed of. And Jesus corrects both of them. Corrects both of them. Now, it's important for us to think through these false views of suffering because they are ever prevalent before us. They explain most of the relationships you and I have, and they even, I believe, explain our current political landscape. Blame and shame. You see, under this picture of shame is what I believe you'll see is a very liberal ideology. You are a victim. 
Someone else, you, you, have, you have to blame someone. You're the victim. But under this, this picture of, of shame is this conservative ideology. You got to fix this. You got to pull yourself up out of this. And if you lean a little bit more to the liberal side, you probably are really good at blaming people and quick to find the perpetrator and even more important in the last few decades, the victim. Such that we don't really know even how to have identity apart from finding out which side of it you are. And this is not new, right? Are you the proletariat? Are you the bourgeoisie, right? For some of you, the, like, you're philosophy nerds, you know what I'm talking about. Like, like, which ones are you? are you? Are you the good guy or are you the bad guy? Are you the perpetrator or are you the victim? And we don't have to know how to, under, if, you, if you lean more liberally, you don't have to understand it otherwise. Now let's be fair. If you're more conservative, you're really, really quick to heap on the shame. You can always find out a way to, to point out that a person in hardship had it coming. You can shame a victim faster than anyone you know. Well, here are the things they did. to Hey, put themselves in that situation. They chose, and down deep, what are they saying? I am the, I'm responsible for my own blessing. I'm responsible for my prosperity. I did this. I pulled myself up out of this. Notice what Jesus does. He says, neither of these explain the way things are. Neither of these will answer the most difficult questions in the world. They will make you feel better about yourself for a moment. They will distract you. You'll look at suffering and things that are broken. And in the moment, you'll say, well, it's someone else's fault. I sure do feel better that it's not me. Or you'll say, it's, it's certainly their fault. I'm certainly glad it's not me. Do, do, do you see both of these things are critiqued by Jesus? And what he does is instead of answering their question, he attacks the assumptions. Now, we call this presuppositional apologetics. That it's a presuppositional critique. That is, he is after the things that you're assuming to be true in the question. The things that the people brought to the table with their question came with a ton of baggage and loaded assumptions. Now, this is funny if you can mess with it. Some of the, I, I like to play with guys on this. Like, uh, like My favorite question to ask some men is like, hey, what's your favorite thing to do in your skinny jeans? Did you get it? Did you get the assumption that's underneath their ability to answer it? They're like, who do? ah. My favorite thing to do is run a marathon in my skinny jeans, frankly. But if you want to poke at someone, you ask a question that has underlying assumptions. And now this is especially important because I know a lot of people, like if you experience me on a regular basis uh, or any other pastors, you, you regularly see this. you like, I came to Jonathan with a simple question and I left with like 20 other deeper, harder questions. Right? You're like, I just wanted Jonathan to tell me if I should do A or B. And I left going like, where do, I, where do I belong? Who am I, right? And pastors do this. Rest easy. We learned it from Jesus. This is his favorite move. This is his favorite move. And I want you to see that. Most of the questions that you bring to Jesus have underlying assumptions that he wants to destroy. Most of the times when you or the people in the Bible, and this is why John introduces us to so many of these, when you come to Jesus and you're like, Jesus, I could do, is it this or this? And he's like, you don't even get it. Over and over and over again, right? So, and, and even to trap them, Jesus is like, your assumptions are wrong. You already have it wrong. 
Like, who will a man be married to uh, in, the, in, the, in the resurrection? Like, is it this person or the, 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 his, her third husband or fourth husband? Who is she going to be? And what does, what does Jesus say to those men? Like, you, you don't understand who God is, and you don't understand the kingdom. Jesus does this. He attacks their assumptions. They say, is it this or this? Is this an issue of explaining suffering through blame or shame? Is it his fault or is it someone else's fault? Is he a victim or does he have something to be ashamed of? And Jesus comes along and says neither. Now this is a biblical theme. My favorite, if, if, you really, if this, if this like starts to make you wrestle, I want to encourage you, you need to read the book of Job. Because this is... Most scholars believe that one of the oldest, like the oldest manuscripts we have of any book of the Bible is the book of Job. It is one of the oldest manuscripts. Why? Because one of the most basic fundamental assumptions is being challenged in its book because it's one of the most basic fundamental questions the human being in a broken world has. And that's why these disciples come with this kind of presupposition and and a set of false options. The book of Job is a journey where Job, a, a righteous man, begins to experience pain and suffering. And it's like, is it his fault? Is he a victim or does he have something to be ashamed of? And you begin to realize at the, by the end of the book of Job, you don't even have an answer. What do you have? You have an assault on all your assumptions about the world and suffering. And so piece by piece, Job loses everything. But then a little bit, as you walk through the journey, you, you, through the book of Job, you see Job gets a little bit more audacious. He's like, oh, I know, this is awful. Um, this is awful. God, you'll save me. And then a few chapters later, he's like, God, this is really not nice. I really don't like it. A few chapters later, God, this is really unfair. And a few, a few later, God, just kill me. And you see all the assumptions built into Job? By the end of the book of Job, you realize that Job assumes that God is not good. And so that all that has happened isn't fair. It isn't good because God is evil. His character is awful. And so everything that he's brought is to destroy him. And then what is the other assumption there? God owes me a comfortable life. And by the end of that book, you know what? This is the, this is the bizarre part, right? This is, again, you're like, I, want, I just want an answer. Who caused this? And by the end of Job, do you know what God does in response? The whole chapter or two? He's like, who are you? He's like, God, who did is it, is it? What's going on? Is there sin I need to repent of? You're unfair. You're unjust. And, and, and God's response is not, it's A or B. He goes, who is this? Who is this that darkens my presence? Where were you when I made the mountains? Where were you when I made the oceans? Where were you when I made the whales and the crocodiles? Where were you? Oh, yeah, Job, you weren't there. Did you catch it? This is a biblical theme. Is it A or B? And God says, you are thinking too superficially. Now Job is another place where you see the blame and shame, right? Job resorts to shame. He's like, surely I've done something wrong. What is it? Surely I've done something wrong. And whatever his friends do, they resort to blame. They do the exact same thing. They're like, no, this, this is something you clearly must have done. It was Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. And by the end of the book, God's indictment is on both. As if to say, look, if God really was paying everyone back with suffering, no one would stand. But there's a future hope that Job gives us, that for those of us in Christ understand that sin and suffering, even though they're connected with great complexity, we realize God has never given us what we deserve. 
we can say, Jesus suffered. Jesus paid this price for me so that I no longer get what I deserve. And for those of us who are in Christ, this is as close to the eternal suffering of hell that will ever be. And for those of us apart from Christ, this is as close to the eternal satisfaction and joy of heaven that will ever be. It's a criticism of this. You see, one of the most insidious things about being a sinful person is not thinking that you're a sinful person. That's one of the worst part about being a sinful person is that we are unable to see our own faults and flaws. Did you connect the dots there? It was blindness, the inability to see. And their explanation for it was much too simplistic. And so we run quickly on a regular basis to an easy, simple answer, something like, this is your fault or this is their fault. And Jesus comes along and says, no, I can heal the victim of blame and the victim of shame. I can heal the perpetrator as well as the one who has been harmed. I can do something that will fix both. It's neither. Now, I want to address just something really quickly here. This, this frees us up to be compassionate. Um, this frees us up. When we really believe that all the suffering that we deserve fell on Jesus, we're freed to be compassionate. We see the antithesis of this and these, uh, the disciples asking this question, don't we? Right? They look at this, this man who was born blind and they don't go like, hey, how can we help? We what, do, what do they see? They see a human being suffering and what do they, what do they believe that it is? an equation to be solved. Now this is where I think I'm so grateful that, that the Bible addresses some of these things. I'm so grateful that the Bible actually uh, like, talks about things like disability, conditions that are beyond our control. I think this is where we ought to enter into kind of a confession. We often think that maybe a person like this who was from birth, unable to see, they're outside the norm. And so then we begin to treat them as such. I know I have. You see this in children. Anyone who is, uh, I have so many friends that have helped me kind of even see this, like people, a friend of mine who, uh, with a, a lifelong disability, one of the hardest things he talks about is like the nature of human beings that he sees in children. Every time he walks in the room, the people who stare at the children. Now it's funny, they're the ones who are the most honest about it. It's the adults that start to lie to themselves. And the children, well, hey, how do, what is this, right? And they tend to ask questions like the disciples. Hey, what happened? I am so grateful that this is in the Bible to help us understand some of the things that are outside of the norm. Because after all, if you're a Christian who's a careful student of our culture, you know something, don't you? Just because it is the norm does not mean that it is good or godly. Just because something is outside of the norm, as you think, doesn't mean that it has any intrinsic moral value imputed to it. Instead, in fact, on a regular basis, things that are the norm are the enemies to the work of God. I'm grateful this is here. I'm grateful for the people in my own life, some of you in this room, who were born with conditions you did not ask for. And I have this really good news here. Evidently, this, I don't know if you caught this, evidently we have a hope. A hope that will somehow be more evident in you than in me.
I know it's the worst privilege on earth, you might think. But I'm so grateful for a second thing. I'm grateful that there are people around us, especially in our church, who are so good at showing real compassion. We talk about this, uh, uh, this way is like, Jesus commands that we would love the Lord our God, and he kind of gives us these, these like categories to think in with all your heart and all your mind and all your being or doing, right? It's, it's, it's spoken of different ways at different places, but there's kind of these, like a, a, it, you're loving the Lord your God with all your mind and thinking and all your heart and feeling and all you're doing, your hands, right? Your head and your heart and your hands. And, and I would say many of you probably have a temperament leaning heavily towards one of those things, if not a couple, right? And it might hinder you from seeing God's holistic healing in Christ, right? So this, for me, this is what this looks like. I'm a thinker-doer, right? And so I, I, I love to Lord, the, the love the Lord my God with, with all, my, all my mind. Let's think this through. And all my do, let's hear what we're going to do. And thank God he gave me daughters. And so I have grown intensely in loving the Lord my God with all my heart. Such that now I'm like, you know, some people are like contagious vomiters. Like if you throw up in front of them, they throw up. I've become like a contagious crier. Like if your eyes water in front of me, I'm going I'm to cry with you. I don't want you to miss that. That's an, that's an excellent thing that God is bringing about in me that hasn't always been there, and I've learned it. Thank God for some of you. Because when I encounter suffering, I tend to lean toward one of two things. Here's what you should think, or here's what you should do. And thank God for some of you, when you see suffering, even my own suffering, you stop and you just come and you hug this guy doesn't need a lecture and he doesn't need a list of things to do. He may need that. We ought to love the Lord our God with all of those things. But thank God for the people who don't do what the disciples do. They see someone hurting and they go like, you know what this guy needs? A hug. And thank God for some of you in this room that are so gifted in this way. You're, you're ambassadors for Christ's compassion. And you receive a great deal of honor here when we see the disciples doing what? Jesus, what should we think about this? What should we do about this? Jesus says that doesn't help. And these false views of suffering are what emerge. So I'm going to give you a couple of things that is his response and we see kind of debated for the rest of the chapter until he kind of concludes in verse 35. First he tells his neighbors. But, but look what Jesus does to set the stage for how we ought to understand the debate that takes place between the neighbors, between the Pharisees the first time, the Pharisees and the parents, and the Pharisees the second time. He said, it was not this man, uh, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but, and then there's this word, but that, literally so that, in verse 3. You see, for the rest of the chapter, they're going to debate, why did this happen, Jesus? How did this happen? What was its purpose? They begin to impugn Jesus' character and even the character of the man who had been healed. And they begin to attack, or at least it seems that, that the, uh, the parents even feel attacked. But he says, so that. Now, don't miss the really powerful truth in the phrase, so that. When Jesus says, look, it wasn't this, and it wasn't that. Instead, it was so that. He gives us a so that. Can I, can I just, I want you to see this. Because of Christ, suffering is never wasted. It is never for nothing. I am not going to stand here and give you all, uh, all the right answers to help you understand how sin and suffering are connected. It's very complex. You see, sin is always connected to suffering in general. 
And suffering is always connected to sin in general. We live in a broken, fallen world. From Genesis 3 on, we realize that not only have we, in, have we born into the worst family, right, where we, the first busted up parts of our family, you remember this? Where our great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Cain killed our great-great-great-great-grandfather, Abel. And we're surprised when over the holidays our families are jacked up. It's literally the first story in the Bible. That's, the, that's our family tree. We're busted. This is something inside of us that, that's, that's ever-present. We feel the weight of this so often. And yet, while maybe suffering in general is connected to sin in general, we also begin to understand it's possible, on, for the most case, in, in most cases, suffering in particular is rarely connected to sin in particular. Rare. especially important for us because of Christ. The so that here points that sin and the suffering that it is caused is never ignored. It's never wasted. It's never for nothing. Please do not forget the symbol of our movement is a symbol of torture and suffering. And yet every Every season of Easter, what do we celebrate that TGI Friday before? That the worst possible day in the history of the world, where the only truly innocent man who never deserved any sort of betrayal was cast out, was turned over, was left to die naked and afraid. And what do we call that Friday? The worst of all Fridays. What do we as Christians call it? Good good friend I lo- don't forget this suffering is never wasted it's never for nothing and Jesus went to the cross so that you would know even in the darkest hour that you live in that you are not alone and that he will not abandon you that sets us free doesn't it they begin to question like, what, you know, what should happen next Why did this happen? What's the purpose? And when we zoom out, we realize suffering is never for nothing. Why are we suffering? Well, sometimes we have specific answers, don't we? I'm reminded of this even this week. I'm reminded of this acutely, I think, just about every single time this kind of thing happens. Seven-year-old girl, her name's Jasmine Barnes, Last Sunday morning around 6.30 in the east side of Houston, a man pulled up to their car. She was gunned down. Seven. Now you can begin to see, right? It's a pretty specific connection to sin and suffering. Right? Someone in an atrocious act of evil brought about pain and suffering. They haven't found the man. But right before Christmas, in the Sunda Strait of Indonesia, a tsunami killed at least 430 people that we know of, and many are still missing and unaccounted for. Well, ask yourself, whose fault was that? You get it's more complicated. Like, who messed that up? And so you begin to realize that sometimes there are specific sins that relate to specific suffering, but more often than not, 
The suffering we experience isn't personal, but instead it's built into a broken, fallen world and roughly related to our own sinfulness. Thanks for being patient with me. I wanted to make sure I got Jasmine's name right. And here's how you know you have a false view of sin rather than see, or excuse me, and, and of suffering is that we begin to miss some of the beautiful things that we see God and His miraculous power doing through it. So sometimes current suffering is less about past explanation and more about something God is going to do in the future. Did you catch what Jesus said? In the so that, He's saying, look, you can sit back and try to understand the past and the history of this suffering, but the thing about a Christian is that we begin to think about the future and what God is going to do through it. And then we begin to spend less time thinking about how this happened and more time dreaming about and hoping for how God is going to make all things new. That He came the first time to destroy sin and death and He will return to remove all suffering. But look what also happens. We see this played out for the rest of these conversations that we can learn from. Suffering exposes what we truly value. The things we've built our lives upon and the things that we are slaves to. Suffering exposes what's probably the most true about us. The things in comfort that we don't typically want to confess or admit are exposed in suffering. They're exposed. And so the thing that you've likely been hoping in, the thing that you've likely been wishing to to happen, the thing that you would would really want to bring about all the joy in your world may be an idol, may be a false hope. And suffering, strangely, begins to expose those things. Ask yourself this question. What does this suffering expose about me? What does it show that I really believe about life? What does it show that I really believe about pain? What does it show that I really believe about comfort? What does this expose that I really believe about who God is and who I am? We often ask, why am I suffering? I want to encourage you maybe to ask an additional question. Why is this suffering to me? Why am I coping with this so poorly? Now, I ask that because this is where we have to realize there's a head and heart to this. There's a compassion I'm asking you to do that because that's exactly what Jesus does. I don't think we have the right to walk into a person's hospital room and and provoke those kinds of questions. I, I don't recommend it. You should hug them. Pray with them. Pray that God would bring hope and healing. But you can ask these questions of yourself. Why is this suffering? Is it possible that I am enslaved to something? Is my inability to have hope in this circumstance related to the fact that I am hoping in something else? You see, if everything other than the work of God, which he says we ought to be doing, that's what what really matters, right? He says, look, this is why. The works of God are going to be made visible, they'll be on display in this person. So if everything other than the work of God that you build your life on is a sandcastle, then is it really cruel for God to allow it to be washed away? 
If the thing you're currently hoping in can't satisfy you and will ultimately lead you to eternal separation from God, is he cruel to expose how frail that foundation is? Now again, I want to make clear, this is Jesus' words, right? This is where on a regular basis we can, off, we can often personify uh, and, and like project a little bit too much onto the messenger, right? When I say like, thou shalt not murder, right? You might find yourself going like, well, who does he think he is? Well, I recognize I didn't write those words, right? I'm not, I didn't. And that's why I use the words thou shalt, so you realize that he's, he didn't say that, right? Well, the same thing's true here. I want you to realize like, I'm not saying stop feeling sorry for us. I'm not saying that your suffering is not a big deal. I am saying we ought to listen to Jesus' words here that he is pointing us to something. He is helping us to see something that's deeper. We don't take it lightly. In fact, the opposite is true. Christians take suffering the most seriously because they know it's beginning. And praise be to God, they know it's end. We take suffering seriously. We are the compassionate ones because we know it's deeper than we think. Our friend or even us, when, when we're in suffering, we know this is worse. A doctor can't fix what's eternally broken. Praise God for the common grace of medicine, but the God alone can fix what is broken in us. And Christians know what's really broken isn't even our body, and our body points to what's really broken. Thank God for the common grace of medicine. Thank God for antibiotics. Thank you all who work in medicine. Keep doing what you do. But I always get a little confounded by, right, when you see those statistics for causes of death. This is the leading cause of death, or this person or that person, right? You realize those statistics can only be transferred. They can't be eliminated. You can completely, medically, functionally, systemically remove a cause of death. And do you know where all those causes of death will go? Somewhere else. Think about that. Our greatest hope is that you would be in a category of what? Death of natural causes. But what assumption is being made in those stats? That death can't be overcome. But thanks be to God. We know that the deeper problem exists from way back and we were born into it. And yet, we know that it does not get the last word. We know that Good Friday is actually good because Jesus walks out alive over death, sin, and hell and the grave on Sunday. We know the beginning of sin, so we have deep compassion. But we know its end because we have seen Jesus, the resurrected one. Look, pain and suffering can only have meaning in relation to the work of God. What work is he talking about? We've got to do this work. Now, on one hand, this work, he says, is ours. And that work is that we are called to multiply disciples and that we are called to be a part of this ministry of opening people's eyes to Jesus. And I love this. I, 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 get, <laughs> I get to like watch this happen sometimes. Even from back here, I'm like, look, Jesus is this good. Like, you're an awful, off, you know, awful rotten sinner, and yet Jesus is a, an amazing and amazing Savior, and I get to sit back here, and every once in a while, some, I get to watch you, like, whoo, like an actual light bulb comes up, and like, I, I get to watch it. You don't get to see it because you're back there. And I get to watch it, and praise God, like, this, this actually happens. This, these things have meaning and relationship to Jesus, and the work of God, we are called to get to participate to see blind people receive our sight. Never forget that you used to be like this man. 
Never forget, you use, I don't know, I used to be that, but for some reason I'm not. I used to be this, but by gra- the grace of God, though I was born this way, what? I am now able to see. That's the work of God, but he's making a reference to the great high priestly prayer that'll make chapters later. And what? He says, I am going to complete the work you've given to me to the point where the work he declares and one of the last words from the cross is what? It's finished. That's the work. And his healing points to this great work and we get to be a part of this work. You see, suffering in the end makes us more like Jesus because we can know that in him we never actually get what we really deserve. Here's one thing that will help you. We often ask the question, why do good things, or excuse me, we do that too. Why do good things happen to bad people? The one I was getting at is, why do bad things happen to good people? We regularly ask that. What's the assumption that Jesus would destroy? You see, there was only one time in all of history where an innocent person received something awful. And that day was Good Friday on a mount called the Skull. And for the rest of us, while we may not get a direct penalty or punishment, the suffering we experience may not be directly related to our own sin or someone else's. It may not be something we can easily blame or experience shame for. We know that even on the best and worst day, we deserve hell. Everything else is a gift. And this is because of Christ, as awful as it will be. We take suffering seriously because we know in Christ no one ever gets what they deserve. He concludes in an ominous way. If you recognize your blindness, Jesus will give you sight. But if you think you can see on your own, then you are the most blind and the most guilty. What does he do? How does he work? He says, do you believe? I love verse 7. Again, the irony, right? Do you believe in the Son of Man? And what does he say? Who is he? If you'll introduce me to him, I'll believe. And what does he say in verse 7? You have what? You've seen him. Where did it start? As it passed by, there's a man blind from birth. And we find out that the thing he needed the most wasn't to be healed of his physical malady. He was healed of his physical malady so that he could see ultimate reality. He, he was opened in his physical eyes so that his soul might be opened to his Savior. And he says, I love, what irony. Hey, you want to know, know who the Son of Man is? Use your eyes. Oh, wait! You get it? I'm here. I'm standing in front of you. Man, what's his response? Worship. Look, he broke the legalist rules. He says, look, I've sent you the water. I'm the satisfying and cleansing water, but I'm also the light. I'm the satisfying ability to see. He says, I've thrown over the legalist demands. All the people who want to heap shame and blame on you, I am intentionally messing with by breaking their Sabbath so that you would realize my hope is actually in me. Did you catch the other irony John told us about? He says, go to Siloam. 
You remember Siloam, right? Siloam was the pool where they would have filled up the jars of water to pour out in the drink offering in the celebration of the tabernacles, where he stood up and said, come to me, and if you drink from me, you'll have all the water you ever need. I was the rock crushed in the wilderness to feed and, and to water God's people and even their flocks. That's me. He says, look, I've thrown off these demands. And now you can see. And I would ask you, do you see him? Do you see him that way? Do you see Jesus this way? Because I want to compel you to think that you can see it on your own is to miss him. Think of it this way. His power was made perfect here in a person that we would call, and forgive me, this is the words we used, a person we would call disabled. A person who was unable to see. And what does it take to have your eyes open? Friend, you bring your disability and your inability to Jesus. If you bring anything else, did you catch it? You're more blind than anyone else. The only thing you can bring to Jesus that we will open your eyes with is your own inability to do so. To confess and repent. I have looked for sight in other ways, but I have not been satisfied. And when you bring yourself, look what you have to be to see Jesus. Did you catch that? You have to take the form of a blind beggar. We talked about this earlier. The only thing you have to bring to Jesus is nothing. Most of us can't do it, can we? Now, I'd love to end there. I'd love to end and call you, hey, like a blind beggar, come to Jesus. I think that happens here. But I don't have permission to end it there, do I? John doesn't end it there, does he? What does he end with? A threat and a warning. And so therefore, so must we. So if you don't see him, go to him. He's the only one who can open your eyes. He may take what's in your hand. You have to confess your own inability and disability. Otherwise, you may not be able to be healed. He can't at least open your eyes to the most eternal revelation of himself. It's not your knowledge. It's not your understanding. Only faith and his ability to do what you cannot do. But here's the scariest part. It turns out they were better off not knowing Jesus or even hearing about him. For once they heard, they were left with a real revelation that you were either seeing Jesus or you are blind and therefore guilty. It is only when we encounter him like a blind beggar that we become seeing messengers sent, sent to the place where only he can satisfy. Go to him, but hear John's warning. In your blame, in your shame, go to him. He has taken the blame. He has worn the shame. Ask yourself this question. What's the worst thing you've ever done? And what's the worst thing that's ever been done to you? Jesus has the ability to heal both the perpetrator and the victim and to give you a new eternal identity. Go to him. Go to him with your inability. It's only when we encounter him like a beggar that we become seeing messengers. But if you tend towards shame and blame, then you above all are guilty. You above all. Let me close with this most perverse expression of how blame and shame can rob us of the good news of Jesus. 
Sometimes they mix together. For example, you see this in a child of divorce. You see this? They actually believe they're the ones to blame. That's how you know it's a false hope. Or someone like me, caught in a mistake, usually the quickest one, instead of accepting the shame of doing something dumb, maybe you're like me, and what do you do? Quickly find someone to blame. They're false hopes because you can see how they don't actually work. I'm going to give you an example that's especially pertinent that I think can open your eyes to Jesus here. In September in the Atlantic, an author by the name of Caitlin Flanagan told a story. In the last couple of years of this Me Too movement where blame and shame are being thrown around as though they are hopes. I want you to see they are false hopes. She tells about a good-looking senior who offered to drive her home. She was depressed and lonely. And this is what she said, I, I was hoping that the promise of this ride home with this senior was a solution to all my problems, all my sadness, all my loneliness, all my inability to figure out how to go to the parties the other kids were always talking about in the hallways before class started. He drove home, looked around, and then suggested they drive to a beach in his car to a deserted parking lot of a deserted beach. And there he tried to force himself on her. She resisted, and unlike so many, she was able to get away. And so what did she do after this? Listen to her words. I told no one. In my mind, it was not an example of male aggression used against a girl to extract sex from her. In my mind, it was an example of how undesirable I was. It was proof that I was not the kind of girl you took to parties or the kind of girl you wanted to get to know. I was the kind of girl you looked to take to a deserted parking lot on a deserted beach and try to make you give them sex. Telling someone would not be revealing what he had done. It would be revealing of how deserving I was of that kind of treatment. Do you hear it? Do you hear how insidious the deception of false hopes are? To where a person aptly guilty would look for someone to blame, but a person who clearly had someone to blame would feel nothing but shame. Friend, hear the good news. Jesus says that he has the ability to heal and satisfy those who experience intense shame and those who cast intense blame. He has, in the justice of God, exercised righteous wrath over the perpetrator, but he has done so by taking the place of the innocent victim. Have your eyes open to him. He's better. He's better than the most clever solution to explain what's broken in the world. He saves us from our idealism and he saves us from our cynicism. Look to him. Or die in your blindness. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Jesus. I confess even now my own inability to put to words rightly how good he is. I ask that you would do what my words cannot. Expose our inability to see you and then open our eyes to behold you. 
God, we confess we regularly try to do this on our own. Help us to even today repent of that. We can't open our own eyes. We can't heal ourselves. We have to confess our healing can only come from you. So for those in this room that maybe they've bought into a lot of other seemingly more convenient solutions and answers, would you begin to invite us to peer into this great mystery of sin and suffering? Not that we would be able to explain it or solve it like it's an equation, but that we would see you finally as the solution to all that's broken in the world, sin that's specific and sin that's general and pervasive. Open our eyes to see you and to hope in you. God, bring a special peace to those in this room who feel nothing but shame. Remind them that you have borne the blame. There is now therefore no condemnation. And one day, we're going to declare that all of these things have worked together for good. Make all things new now, even for those of us in shame. For those of us who tend to just throw blame, we are always looking for someone to demonize. We're always looking for a way to feel like a victim. Help us to realize that you have been the great victim so that we can be the great victor. And we are now more than conquerors through the one who is the great victim. Thank you for enduring great punishment so that we can experience great peace. We love you for this. Open our eyes to this as only you can do in Jesus, in your power, in your name, through your work on the cross. Amen.